I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me back to Isaiah chapter 63. And if you've been tracing uh, some of the themes in the uh, hymns and the Psalms and also the New Testament reading, uh, you won't be surprised that we'll be considering the first six verses of Isaiah 63 this morning. But let me just at this time read the first verse of this 63rd chapter. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? This that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. We live in a day when the Church of Christ, in the West at least, seems to be losing ground and losing ground rapidly. Uh, The forces of militant atheism, uh, humanism, uh, and such like, and all kinds of iniquity uh, seem to be reigning on every side. And even among the people of God, generally speaking, uh, there seems to be an apathy and an indifference. Uh, We very easily get settled on our leaves enjoying the ease and comfort that the material plenty we have gives to us. And as we see this tide of uh, evil uh, under atheism and humanism and so forth uh, spreading out, we feel there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, We feel powerless to change things at all. And as we occasionally read of former days, like the days of the Reformation, Uh, The days of the Evangelical Awakening with George Whitfield and the Wesleys and others. Uh, The days of the 1859 Revival when millions across the United States and the UK were swept into the Kingdom of God. We read of that and it all seems so strange, so far removed from us. And we wonder, will we ever see anything like that again? We think about the future and we fear for what it might bring. We think of our children and of our children's children, and we wonder to the Lord, what kind of a world will they be in, given how it has declined, uh, particularly since the Second World War. Feel like there is no hope, and things only ever seem to go from bad to worse, and that is the continuing pattern. Is there any hope for us? Is the Church of Christ defeated? Well, those kind of feelings were probably felt and experienced by the children of Israel uh, just over two and a half thousand years ago when they went into captivity uh, when Babylon conquered them. The Babylonians had come and they had destroyed everything in their society, their homes, their heritage, Jerusalem, that great city, the temple itself, was all destroyed, everything. The whole society had disintegrated and they were taken away into a foreign land and it all seemed hopeless. Everything seemed at an end. But Isaiah, prophesying around a hundred years before they went into captivity, he foresees in these latter chapters of his prophecy a return of glory to God's people, uh, a return of glory to Zion, Uh, that is the uh, 
You can take that as the Old Testament description of the church and as part of glory coming to Zion, the ingathering of the Gentiles, of the world, salvation going out to there. And so he encourages them with a message of restoration and of deliverance. And he exhorts them to look for their deliverer, uh, particularly there in verses 10 and 11 of, verse, uh, of chapter 62. He says, Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people, so a way of preparation. Behold, the Lord hath proclaimed unto the end of the world, say ye to the daughter of Zion, speak to the people of God, behold, thy salvation cometh, behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. And so Israel is to expect deliverance through the servant of the Lord. And he then goes on at the beginning of this 63rd chapter, and you'll remember, of course, there were no chapter divisions when Isaiah wrote this, so this carries straight on from what he'd put in at the end of what we have as chapter 62. Uh, he is given this vision of this man who is this deliverer that the children of Israel are to look for. Uh, let me just trace out a few of the details to explain it uh, before we uh, look at the message that it has for us. Uh, we're told that he's coming from a place called Edom. Uh, where or what is Edom? Well, Edom was a, a land area to the south, uh, southeast really, of Israel. And the Edomites were the perpetual enemies of Israel. They descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. Uh, and you remember Esau that he despised his birthright. Uh, he was willing to let that go just uh, for a, a meal. Uh, counted his spiritual blessings worth less than just a bowl of food and how representative that is of our current culture which is so taken up with material possessions they despise what is truly valuable that which is spiritually blessed well he comes up from Edom uh, this land that was inhabited by the perpetual enemies of God's people and specifically he's coming from Bosra now, Bosra was the capital of Edom. And so coming up from this area, uh, uh, that area represents all that is opposed to God and to his people. This is uh, put in picture form, that which is against the people of God and the gospel of Christ. And this man is coming then from that area. And uh, Isaiah, as it were, sees him at a distance. And it's, he can see it's a man, a lone figure, but he can't really see who he is. And obviously he's walking towards him. So as he gets closer, some details start to emerge. And he sees, as he gets closer, two particular things, two details he notices about him. First of all, his clothing. His clothing is stained red, dyed red. I think in the ESV, which many of you have, um, it said with crimsoned garments or crimsoned clothing from uh, Bosra. Uh, so he has red clothing. And then secondly, the thing that uh, Isaiah notices is the, the way in which he is moving, uh, the, the, the manner of his gait, we might say. He is walking as one who is master of all that he surveys. Uh, he is striding out 
traveling in the greatness of his strength is how the King James puts it. And so he sees him, sees his clothing, sees the way he's walking, and he calls out, well, who is this? Who is this that comes, is coming from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? And he asks, well, why? Why are your clothes dyed so red like that? Those two questions. Why are your garments red uh, like him that treads in the winepress? Now, this brings in a, a picture of the ancient world, and I understand some parts of the world where they make wine, this is still done. Uh, but the grapes would be harvested and brought to some kind of big stone basin, uh, and there would be ropes uh, suspended from above, and the men would get in, and hanging onto the ropes, they would then start to press out the grapes uh, to release the juice uh, from the grapes. Uh, and as they did that, of course, the juice would spurt up on their long clothing. You know, Middle Eastern men wear long clothing, don't they? And by the end of the day's work, uh, they would have dyed uh, clothing. That's, and that's what it looks like. It looks like someone's been treading out the wine press. Well, the man answers these questions, and the answer that he gives shows that this is nothing less than the servant of the Lord, or as we know him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 uh, references the same imagery and makes that clear. I that speak in righteousness, I am the one that is mighty to save. This can be none other than God in the flesh. And really this is all figurative language portraying Christ's victory over his enemies. Uh, just as the men trod out the grapes in the winepress, so as it were, Christ has trodden underfoot his enemies and he comes up with the evidence of their blood spattered upon his clothing, having defeated his enemies. And so we see here in this prophecy, this vision of Isaiah, Christ's total conquest over his enemies. So taking as our theme for this morning, our returning conqueror, our returning conqueror, we want to see three, uh, sorry, five aspects uh, concerning his conquest. First of all, we'll see that it's a righteous conquest. Secondly, we'll see that he conquered alone. He conquered purposely, thirdly. Fourthly, he conquered completely. And fifthly, he conquered redemptively or savingly. So first of all, he conquered righteously. It may seem a strange thing to say that what is pictured here, uh, the killing of many enemies, is righteous or is just. I mean, after all, isn't it wrong to kill anybody? Uh, in recent decades, there's been rightful horror at what is called genocide, uh, the mass killing of groups of people or nations of people. You just think about Hitler and the Nazis in World War II and the six million people, Jews, that they uh, put to death, mainly in the gas chambers. Uh, you think of Stalin, who actually killed far more of his own people than Hitler did in World War II. You think of the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda, even in my lifetime, in the early 90s. 800,000 people killed in a matter of months. And we rightly react with horror at that. And people will say, well, God is 
the Old Testament is just the same. He ordered the killing of whole nations. They were put under the ban, as it were, the Canaanites, uh, the Amalekites, with Saul and Samuel. And they try and drive a wedge between the what they call the God of love of the New Testament and then the, the, the tyrant God of the Old Testament. What do we say to those things? How they term God's unethical actions in wiping out whole nations. Well, he's entirely just and righteous in what he did. These people had sinned for a long, long time. Or in the case of the Edomites, they had uh, persecuted God's people and rejoiced in the fact that they had done so. Uh, in Psalm 137 and verse 7, uh, the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, the day when Jerusalem was sacked by the Babylonians. And the Edomites were saying, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. It's like the Edomites were on the outside and saying, they were cheering on the Babylonians as they judged God's people. And so what God did he did as a righteous God in all those episodes in the Old Testament. And this uh, warrior, our Lord Jesus Christ, that comes up from having fought his enemies, he has conquered them righteously. He's conquered them righteously. It's not capricious. It's not on a whim. No, there is righteous and just, fair reasons for what he has done because they have sinned and sinned uh, without repenting. So he comes having conquered righteously. He's pictured as having conquered, but there is also, notice with me, a future aspect to this, because he says in verse 6, and I will tread down the people in mine anger. How do we explain that then, that he, on the one hand, is coming up having conquered, and yet he says, I will yet go on to tread down the people in mine anger and will make them drunk in my fury and bring down their strength to the earth. Well, there's two points to say to that. First of all, uh, the fact that it's future, uh, it's as good as done already, even though it hasn't been uh, finalised and uh, completed. We have that in the New Testament, in uh, that great chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 8. Uh, we're told that God predestinated uh, his people. He called them, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. All of these things are past tense. He predestined. That's a work before the foundation of the world, before anything ever existed. And he called them by the gospel and by the Spirit. He justified them, he, uh, but then he also glorified them. But the glorifying hasn't happened yet. And yet Paul puts it past tense because it's as good as done. And so whilst what we see here has got a future aspect, yet it has been secured already. Uh, there are those two uh, time frames to it. But then secondly we say this, that there are two stages to Christ's conquest. Two stages to his victory. Uh, despite how this has been often Understood. This does, passage does not primarily point to the cross at Calvary. It points to Christ's final victory over his enemies at the end of the age. But 
that victory was secured in principle at the cross because that is when Christ routed his enemies. He defeated the devil. He got a victory over death and over sin. Uh, he secured the victory in principle. And what will happen, or what is happening now, and what will happen at the end of the age when he overthrows all his enemies will be but the working out of what has already been secured in principle at the cross. Because the blood uh, that we see here upon his garments is not his own blood which he shed upon the cross, it's the blood of his enemies. And so he is working this uh, out. The writer of the Hebrews says that you have put all things in subjection under his feet, but now we see not yet all things put under him. So in principle, Christ is reigning over everything, and yet he's in the process of working this out, bringing all things under his sovereign and righteous sway. Well, Israel was to be encouraged uh, by this, that her enemies uh, would be defeated and it would be done righteously. And Christ, when he conquers his enemies, it will be a righteous conquest. There will not be anyone on the, on the day of judgment able to criticize uh, God or Christ for the way he's acted. They will not be able to impugn his justice and say, that's not fair. Though it will be just, though it will be hard and terrifying for those that are on the receiving end of it, but it will be just. Well, he conquers righteously, but secondly, we see that he conquers alone. He says in verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. In verse 5, And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Zion is encouraged to behold their warrior king coming to them and realising that he has done it all by himself. He hasn't needed anybody to help him. He has gone into battle by himself and he has won. Now surely the Israelite, uh, when he heard these words, would have been reminded of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 and verse uh, 1, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? From the words of my roaring. Be not far from me, for trouble is there. There is none to help. There is none to help. Well, whereas God had used Israel as the means of judgment on the nations in times past, now we're told that this victory will be accomplished by one man, to be accomplished by Christ alone. And he will be conscious of doing it alone because he says, I looked and there was none to help. He, he self-consciously is aware that he is doing it by himself. There's nobody that can help him in this. He has to go into it all by himself. Though, as I say, this will be done and brought in finally at the end of the age. It was secured in principle at the cross. And here we are reminded that our Saviour was by himself upon the cross. All men forsook him and fled. Even his own disciples ran away. Peter denied him. There were a few of the women who followed him from Galilee who were near, and it appears John the disciple was around the cross as well. But he was alone. 
and, and spiritually, when we consider what he was actually doing, he was totally alone. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Satan and all his forces arrayed against him. He went into battle, but he defeated death and him that had the power of death. Satan still rages, of course, but his day is coming. He's a finished foe because Christ by himself has defeated him. And he knows, therefore, what it is like to be alone. I wonder if there's anybody here this morning and you feel lonely. You can be in a crowd, as it is often said, and be alone. Well, Jesus Christ knows what loneliness is. He's felt it. He's been through it. And so he can empathise with anybody who comes to him who feels that. He can draw near and understand. Well, he goes into battle alone and conquers alone. But thirdly, we see that he conquered purposely. He tells us that he's exercised judgment at a particular, at a specific time. In verse 4, he says, The day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. Uh, though it has appeared the enemies of God were triumphing, yet Christ has determined that there is a, an hour, there is a day, there is a, a year, as it's put here, but it is specific, when he will deal with his enemies, when he will defeat them, and he will conquer them. Uh, one commentator uh, says... Uh, concerning this passage, that what the passage wants to assert is that God has his foes totally under control, even when they are doing their worst. He has them totally under control, even when they are doing their worst. So as you and I look out on the world today, and we see what is happening in Ukraine, and we see what is happening in our own country, from a, a spiritual and a religious sense, we think, is it out of control it seems that way sometimes but no it's not he, God has exactly even the devil where he wants him he will ultimately serve his purposes the enemy cannot prosper any longer than God's will dictates we read in scripture that uh, and there are examples of this about God bringing evil rulers up and he'll use them for a time, and then he'll put them down again. He said that to Pharaoh, didn't he? Uh, Pharaoh did all of those wicked things against God's people. He resisted rebelliously God's will. But when the time came, God said, you finished in my purposes with you, and Pharaoh's end came. In Romans 9, we read the words, who has resisted his will? Who can resist God's will? If God designs to act against evil and his enemies, they are surely finished. Well, though Israel's affliction was great and long, 70 years in Babylonian captivity, the end was certain. And in this vision, they saw not only their release from captivity, but the defeat of their enemies that had not yet been beaten, the set time to favour Zion would come. God had determined it. 
that night would come at Belshazzar's feast. Mino, Mino, you farcily. You're found in the balances and found wanting. And that night the Medes and the Persians swept in and the Babylonian Empire was no more. And you go to where it was today and there's nothing left. And so though it appears that evil is triumphing, it is but the devil's last gasps of breath. He's doing all that he can, but he knows he's a beaten foe and God has everything under control. And so though we as the Church of Jesus Christ may appear to be losing against all those isms I spoke about at the beginning, and there seem to be new ones all the time, one day the Church will conquer and be victorious over them all because Christ will destroy them all and there will be nothing left to trouble his people anymore. Righteousness will reign supreme. There will not be one sin left in this universe because God will just wipe the world clean. The heavens and the new earth will be created afresh. Oh, my friends, this morning, do we feel, do we think that God is thwarted in any way? He's got everything on his perfect plan. But fourthly, we see that he conquered completely. Uh, it was a comprehensive, a total victory, we might say. Uh, now, at the end of World War II, uh, you first of all had victory in Europe. That was about this time. I think we commemorated it just a few days ago. And then a bit later in August, you had victory in Japan. Uh, and the, the war was over. And yet there were still pockets of resistance because there were still on really remote islands in the Pacific uh, Japanese soldiers who were still holding out and were not going to give up. And they were kept coming out even until the 1970s, I understand. So it, although the war was over, the resistance hadn't been totally finished. But we find here that this is a total victory. Uh, now, it's not stated explicitly, but it can be inferred from a couple of places. First of all, that opening verse where we read that he's travelling in the greatness of his strength or striding out. Uh, the whole manner of the way this warrior walks shows that he knows there is nobody left to trouble him. He's not worried that someone's going to ambush him or come up from behind. No, he knows he's defeated them. He's routed them totally. They've all been slain. And then we read in verse 6 that he will make them drunk in his fury and he will bring down their strength uh, to the earth. Uh, their strength there is actually the word juice. Uh, it's a play on words here by Isaiah. And of course, the juice in this whole imagery refers to the blood and the life of man is in the blood, as the Old Testament tells us. It's not an odd spot of blood upon his garments. No, he is soaked. He's soaked in the blood of those that he has slain. Well, there is coming a day when Satan will be totally defeated, every last sin done away with. Thomas Kelly wrote a hymn based on this passage. Unfortunately, it's not in Christian hymns, but the third verse of that hymn says this, Why that blood, his raiment, or his clothing, staining? Tis the blood of many slain. Of his foes there's none remaining, none the contest to maintain. 
Fallen they are no more to rise, all their glory prostrate lies. So it it will be a complete victory, nothing less. The success of the world at the present time is illusory, it's not real. At the very least, it's only temporary. It will not last. Just to think of it, all the evil in this world, all the suffering that that causes, the lives that are ruined by man's wickedness, it will all be stopped, done, finished, because the enemies who perpetrate these things will be destroyed. But then fifthly and finally, I see time has slipped away. We see the whole purpose of why Jesus as this warrior king does this. Because we, we see that he conquers redemptively or he conquers savingly. He is, as our first verse tells us, the mighty to save. He's the mighty to save. He can and he will deliver his people because there is nobody now left to oppose them. It is the year of his redeemed. That is why he has gone into battle against his enemies, because his people are under threat by them. And he loves his people. He loves them so much, he doesn't want them to live in fear and to be under attack. He wants them to dwell in peace and in safety, to be able to live in righteousness. And so he will go in against the enemy, defeat the enemy, and then with the enemy defeated, there's none left to trouble his people. And they are his redeemed. Not that they will be his redeemed once he has defeated the enemy, but because they are his redeemed, they are his people whom he has loved, whom he has chosen before the foundation of the world, chosen unto salvation, he will go into battle. He will deal with all their enemies by himself. Scatter those enemies so that his people may live in peace and joy and righteousness. It's redemptive. He he does it because he comes to save. He comes to save sinners like you and like me. Well, where does that leave each of us this morning. It's a wonderful picture of our Saviour as the returning conqueror, that he is the victor, and if we are with him, then we are on the victory side. Where this conquest will take place, as I said, at the end of the age. When will that be? When Jesus comes again. When will that be? Jesus said, no man knows that but my Father, which is in heaven. Could be tonight. Could be this week. Could be this year. We don't know. But we are told in such an hour as we think not, the Son of Man will come. As surely as he ascended up to heaven, he will come again in the same manner. Except he won't come this time In the weakness of his incarnation, he will come on the clouds of glory with great acclaim as the almighty king to come and to rule and reign forever, to deal with his enemies, the enemies of the church, to cast them all into that lake of fire 
and brimstone, lake of fire and sulfur. All those who are not among his redeemed will be destroyed. Because Jesus said, he that is not with me is against me. And destruction is not annihilation. It's not annihilation. It will be the conscious suffering forever and ever, always dying but never dead. The day of judgment is coming, friends, but today is a day of grace. And Jesus is a wonderful saviour. And he is such that though we at this present time might be his enemies, he has come to turn enemies into his friends. That is why he came, to, that we might be his friends. And he's willing that each one of us, though we may have lived in opposition to him, though we may have refused him, and as it were, made ourselves his enemies, he would say to us, friend, I do you no wrong. And he would invite us to come and to find safety and refuge, to find salvation, life, forgiveness with him. To find that today, so that we are safe and so that we too are on the victory side. Well, if that is you this morning, my friend, if you've never yet known what it is to become a friend of Jesus, uh, then make sure of it today. Go to him and say, Jesus, I have been your enemy, but I want to be your friend. Save me from my sin. I deserve such judgment. And he is able and willing to receive all those that come to him. But what for us, those of us that are his people that constitute the church? Well, as we look around about us, things can seem vain and hopeless, both at a local level and at an international level. What will happen? Is there any point to it? Or we can grow despondent and defeated as we look around us. But of course, faith needs to look up. And to see, again, our Lord Jesus Christ, to realise that he is the great conqueror and that final victory is assured. And to realise that though evil may appear to be prospering and triumphing at the moment, it is only an appearance and that it is all serving God's perfect plan. Though the church may appear to, like Jerusalem's walls, lie in ruins at the moment, yet God will build the walls of Jerusalem. The church is secure because God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so let us therefore look as Isaiah looked and he saw this warrior king coming towards him. Let us behold and look to the clouds, knowing that in such an hour as we think not, the Son of Man comes, that he will come in glory, and we who are his will be able to rise to meet him, or else we will rise from the dead and join those that come with him from glory. Let us confidently expect his return and the ushering in of this glorious triumph, and then we shall have all eternity to enjoy that victory and to live in righteousness free of all enemies 
Sin, my worst enemy before, shall vex my eyes and ears no more, Isaac Watts said. My inward foes shall all be slain, nor Satan ruin my peace again. And so we shall be forever with the Lord.